As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to firsthand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers who make up the interesting world of food and hospitality. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we are recording remotely again from Queens and Louisiana, right, Valerie? I've lost track of where you are. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's just so it's it's such a crazy times right now, but yeah, we're we're both remotely today. Where, so um, as is our guest. Wait, wait, I, I want to hear more a, about you before we introduce our guest. Where, what, how are things in Louisiana? <laughs> um, things in Louisiana are very, very dead, which is wonderful. Dead in the sense that it's um, you know, no one is no one is out and about. It's completely different from Harlem. Um, it's just very quiet. I'm in the suburbs and it's just very quiet. Everyone is absolutely hunkered <laughs> down. Are you eating well at least? Always. Yeah. Always eating well. <laughs> I, I should have known. I shouldn't have had to ask. All right. Anyway, let's introduce our awesome guest for this week. Uh, Lori Wolliver is a writer and author of the forthcoming in October, uh, Anthony Bourdain World Travel. Um, And she was Anthony Bourdain's right hand for a long time and uh, has done lots of other really interesting things in the food world and the food media world in her own right. Uh, Lori, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. uh, I love to talk about myself. So this is really (laughs) an opportunity for me. And you also host a podcast, don't you? I do. Yes. I have a podcast called uh, Carb Face for Radio, and I co-host that with Chris Thornton, who you may know from Twitter as Shit Food Blogger. Ah, uh, yes, of of course. Um, what's the what's just briefly what's the the shtick of that of your podcast? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty weird. Uh, you know, in theory, we're talking about food and food media. Uh, we've had on uh, various journalists and uh, some chefs and people kind of in and around that world. Uh, there's also just a lot of kind of uh, silliness and um, I guess improv. I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think we consider ourselves a comedy podcast, but we do try and and make each other laugh and uh, not take anything too, too seriously. Yeah. And a a fair amount of vulgarity too. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's kind of our, um, that's, that is who we are. Yeah. So why don't we start uh, with your your entry into food writing or or into the food world in general? Where did your where did that journey start for you? Sure. Uh, so I, I studied natural resources in college, uh, which for me at that time meant uh, you know field work and uh, basically trying to uh, exploring a career as an environmental scientist. Um, and as it turned out, I was not great at science and not great at math and kind of lacked the academic rigor uh, to really uh, commit to that. So after a couple of weeks of working as a uh, as a, an intern at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden in Brooklyn, I uh, sort of pivoted and became a, a private cook for a family. And um, 
and I loved it. I did that for about two years. I learned a lot about what it is to be a, an extremely rich and eccentric person in New York uh, <laughs> and all of the sort of just upstairs, downstairs stuff that you've, you know, have heard from, from people in that world. And from there, I decided that I, I really wanted to make cooking a career and, uh, and, and really know what I was doing. I mean, I was really just kind of winging it and working out of cookbooks. And fortunately, the family that I worked for had pretty simple needs. They wanted extremely healthy, low-fat food. Uh, but I wanted to actually have some skills. So I enrolled at uh, what was then called French Culinary Institute, and I think now is known as the International Culinary Center uh, in Manhattan. Uh, and then uh, quickly realized that uh, restaurant the, the world of restaurant cooking was not... Uh, what I thought it was, not not the sort of soft lit fantasy that I that I had um, believed it to be before I actually enrolled in cooking school and realized that it was sweaty. It was physical hard work. Uh, the pay was um, way lower than I than I had anticipated. And I will say I did almost no research uh, before I uh, committed to cooking school. And I think it's probably a good thing. Uh, I probably would have would have gotten scared off and and not done it. And uh, as much as I didn't want to uh, end up in restaurant kitchens. I'm really glad that I got that education that I did. Uh, so after a couple of false starts, I ended up working as Mario Batali's um, assistant for about three years. And that was, as you can imagine, a, a real education in all kinds of things, restaurants, business, television, food writing, um, you know, just the full gamut. And it was a really exciting time. It was, uh, Babo had just opened, it was doing really well. And it was just this whole uh, really exciting world that I got to observe and be a part of. Um, and while I was doing that, that's when I started writing about food. Um, I got to know various editors uh, through the whole world of, of Mario and his restaurants. And uh, I started, uh, I think my first piece was at Time Out New York, and then I did uh, something for a website called eLuxury.com, which is like the most sort of, uh, to me, just really sums up where we were at with the internet, internet 1.0. Uh, I think I, the first piece I wrote for them was about truffles or foie gras, you know, something very uh, luxury oriented. And, uh, and from there, I, I did more stuff with Time Out New York. I got some bylines in the New York Post and uh, then eventually the New York Times. Um, and then uh, after, after I stopped working for Mario, I, I was a freelance writer for a couple of years. That's an incredibly difficult uh, financial position to be in, uh, especially in New York. So I supplemented that with uh, catering work and private cooking again. And then uh, from there, I uh, somehow got myself hired at Art Culinaire magazine, which uh, if listeners don't know, it's this beautiful hardcover, full color uh, magazine that uh, in the pre-internet times, I think chefs really um, collected feverishly. And it still has a, a, a robust readership, but I think in the time before you could easily get recipes and easily get uh, photos of food. This was a way for chefs to um, learn what their colleagues were doing and also an opportunity for chefs to really show off and make their most beautiful work uh, and have it really photographed in this very loving, uh, almost sort of food porny way. Um, I did that for about two years. And then from there, I went on to Wine Spectator magazine and I was there for a couple of years. I worked as uh, an associate editor on the web um, more focused on wine and food pairing and on recipes and chef profiles. Um, and I learned a lot about wine and the wine business. And then from there, I, uh, I took on the job of Anthony Bourdain's assistant. And that was in 2009. And I did that until his death in 2018. How did that, how did that, uh, the job with Anthony Bourdain, how did that come about? How did you meet him in, for the first time? What was, what was the decision like to leave uh, your career as a writer and, and work mm -hmm. with him instead? Yeah, and also, I'm, I mean, you mentioned you worked with Mario Batali for a time. I'd imagine that during that period, you probably made like so many connections and were able to like um, really get 
in the door of this like very um, gate kept <laughs> food mm-hmm. media landscape. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, to, so to start with Mario, uh, you know, that absolutely is true. I mean, he was uh, instrumental in introducing me to uh, the people who were able to give me assignments and just kind of getting me um, a foot in the door. Uh, and so for all of his, um, you know, subsequent travails and uh, all of what we know happened with him later, uh, I, I give him a lot of credit for really um, generously uh, helping me to, to to be a food writer, which is, I was very clear with him when I took the job that that was my primary interest was, was writing about food. So he was uh, happy to introduce me to the people that he knew. And there were people that I just dealt with on a day to day that wanted to talk to him uh, that I, you know, became friendly with. And uh, I I don't think you can um, overestimate the importance of those kinds of connections, those kinds of personal introductions. I mean, I I think that the food writing world has really opened up quite a bit since then. This was in, we're talking 1999, 2000. Uh, But uh, it's still to this day, I think, you know, who you know, who you've, you've made a connection with as an editor um, can really set you apart and, and make your pitch, uh, you know, stand out to somebody if they know who you are, if they've met you at a party or if you've got friends in common. And it's, you know, for better or worse, I think there are probably a lot of very talented writers who have trouble getting a foot in the door because they don't live in, you know, a, a major metropolitan area where a lot of the editors are, or for whatever reason, they're just not um, getting that social FaceTime. Of course, social media has changed that as well. But at, at the time in 1999, it was it was really crucial to to have those personal relationships. And uh, in fact, Mario uh, also introduced me to Tony Bourdain back at that time. Uh, I was getting ready to, to end my time working for Mario and he had become friends with Tony. Tony was starting to write a cookbook. Uh, the It's called Anthony Bourdain's Layal Cookbook. And he was looking for someone like me who could uh, work with him on the recipes and take them from the kitchen notebooks uh, and, and you know, write them in a, rewrite them in a way that was appropriate for a home cook. And I had done that kind of work with Mario. So I, uh, so Mario introduced me to Tony and he hired me to do that for that cookbook. So I'd known him since 2002. And we had a good experience working together on that book. And then um, much later in 2009, after I had done some other work, I had had a child. I was back full time at Wine Spectator, but really kind of looking to make a change in the way that I was working and managing my time. It was for me not ideal to be working full time and have a newborn at home and having to put him in daycare and I thought, well, let me see if I can figure out another way to to work this where I'm still working, but I'm not, you know, going into Manhattan every day from Queens. And I reached out to probably 50 people one day, just kind of went through my contact list and said, listen, I'm looking for part time work. If you know anything, just keep me in mind. Here's what my skills are. And, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm open to a different kind of situation. And Tony wrote back right away. And said, you know, my assistant uh, is is getting ready to leave and move on. Would you consider um, working for me? I know it's not exactly what you're looking for, uh, but it, it would be an easy gig, and we know each other, and I think maybe it would be a good fit. And so that was it. it really took very little time for me to to think about it. Uh, it just was sort of the, the the perfect situation. I liked him. I I, I knew that I could work with him, and uh, and so I just gave my notice and and started right away. And I, I love what you said about, um, it was almost like advice you kind of gave for us aspiring food writers or people who are looking to kind of break into the industry because, I mean, yes, the industry has changed and now there's social media, but what you said about stressing the importance of human connections mm-hmm. and, you know, whether that's even, and I think you can even make those connections um, virtually or from a distance um, mm-hmm. by just maybe reaching out to editors by retweeting what they write and, and engaging with the work in a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just like really excellent advice um, for people who do aspire to get into food writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's this social media has, I mean, there are people that I have never met in person, but I feel like we have a strong personal and or, you know professional. And in some cases we have personal friendships and it's just, 
this this platform that didn't exist when I started. And uh, I, you know, I'm grateful in some ways because I think I was young and impulsive and probably would have made a fool of myself a lot if I had <laughs> had social media when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. But uh, now I think it's, yeah, it's really, it's really opened up. Um, it's, it's been a democratizing force in some ways. Of course, I think, you know, it's also had uh, not a great financial impact on journalism as a whole in terms of everything being so um, free and easy to share. It's harder to, you know, to generate revenue for, for original content, but that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> conversation. Geesh, yeah. Yeah, and, and Valerie's uh, work, am I allowed to talk about this, is working on her own first cookbook and uh, in the middle of all the fun things that that entails. Mm. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. Um, did, you, did you find uh, similarities between your work as an assistant and your work as a writer? Was there something about the, uh, I don't know, the, the observational process or, or uh, I don't know, just any... any overlaps between those two positions? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I never really looked at it that way. For me, I think the the working as an assistant uh, was sort of the necessary evil in order to give me uh, like the financial security to, to work as a writer. Because up until, really up until Tony died, I I never saw a way for myself to just work as a writer and to be able to uh, make enough money to live, um, you know, a decent life in New York. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a struggle. It's, it continues to be a struggle. Uh, so I, I don't, I think it was, for me, it was very comforting to have work that didn't involve uh, me having to create something new out of my own brain and, and use those muscles. It was nice to be able to generate income just by being efficient and smart and detail oriented and do something that's not, you know, as they say, not rocket science, but was a value, you know, provided a value to Mario, provided a value to Tony um, and, and still have time and, and mental space in my life to, to devote to writing. Could you could you talk a little more about the the I don't know what to call it exactly the you're, you're spending so much time getting to know somebody who's got such a public profile and persona but you're doing it in a in a much more private intimate way and often dealing with kind of the mundane details of their lives uh, could you talk a little bit about that juxtaposition that uh, feeling of I don't know is it access or mm-hmm. or insight that mm-hmm. that most of the world doesn't have? Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, it's been so long uh, since I worked with Mario, but I did, I did, uh, you know, I felt like I was in that case, I was immersed in, and I was working out of, uh, Babo restaurant. I was, um, kind of, you know, I felt like I saw the whole picture and, um, you know, the work that I did was sometimes it was, it was restaurant related stuff and sometimes it was TV related stuff. So I think I got a really good kind of overview into all of the different professional ways that a person is pulled when they are both a restaurant professional and a uh, media personality. Uh, With Tony, uh, it was different because uh, he didn't have a restaurant life. His whole um, his career was was just these different parts of media, and so I I really got a sense of how you know how the sausage gets made, as they say. Uh, at the same time, what I realize now, as I work on this this oral biography, is that um, God, you you never really you never really know somebody. Uh, as much as you think you do, you know, I, I worked really closely with him for nine years. We were in touch every day. I always knew where he was and what he was up to. But in um, interviewing the people that I have for this book, I, every single one of, I'd say there's probably 65 or 70 interviews I've done so far. Every single one of those people, uh, from family members to high school friends to, you know, colleagues from kitchens to colleagues from television and publishing. I've learned something new about Tony from every single one of those people. So I think even if you're working as an assistant to somebody and meeting their daily needs, um, everyone's kind of a mystery, you know, and and there are things that 
uh, I probably never would have known about Tony had I not been in this uh, position to to be doing this this posthumous book about him. So you know, I just have to say, I would rather him I would rather him still be here and be a mystery than know these things. But uh, as that's not a possibility, I'm I'm grateful to have the opportunity to um, to get to know him a little bit deeper uh, in this way. What are some of those things? What are some of the things you've learned? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to know? Oh, right. Spoiler alert. You've got to wait for the book, Ethan. It's coming out next year. Harper you're, Collins. You're so right. You're yes. so right. I thought I could, I thought I could uh, slip one in. But, yeah. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate anyway. the gesture. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's really interesting uh, just about, like, I guess, humanity, right? Like, even, um, even people that obviously have, like, a public persona, I think it applies – um, to all of us in general, we just all have like different parts of ourselves that we share with certain people in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that you're getting kind of this 360 degree view mm-hmm. of his life, um, I think that's going to be super interesting. Um, and I remember like, um, and this is this is like, this might sound way off base, but um, I remember when... I went to Amsterdam and I went to the Anne Frank house and I was reading about what her father said after they discovered the diary after they Mm -hmm. discovered her diary. And he read it and he said, um, as close as they were as close of a father daughter relationship that they had, um, he realized how much he didn't know about his daughter who lived with him her whole Mm -hmm. life. Um, so I think that's just kind of like telling in the sense of like, you know, you spoke to this man every day and, and you've since been speaking to all of these people that have occupied different places in his life. But um, you're just in such a unique position now to get this wider view. And um, I think we're all pretty lucky that you're going to be sharing that with all of us. Well, thank you. I hope I, I hope I do it justice. I mean, it's been a really, uh, it's been a good sort of cathartic, uh, way to, to kind of process that loss and to, um, to, you know, I hope I'm, I'm doing him justice. And, you know, I, I appreciate that I've got, uh, access and kind of a base of knowledge that I'm working from as somebody who, you know, who worked with him for, for a good chunk of time. So, uh, right. Yeah. It's, you know, I've, and- <laughs> I've just got to finish the thing. <laughs> right. And I'm, I am curious, right. Because obviously you, you have, such an incredible background in food. And as a food writer, um, taking on this project is obviously a little different. Um, mm-hmm. What have some of the challenges been and what have you learned? And, um, and, and this, cause I mean, this is more like biographical, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a completely different kind of project than anything I've done before. And uh you know, I, I was talking to the director who's making a uh, documentary about Tony, and I was kind of describing my process of conducting interviews and then kind of analyzing them and pulling them apart and stitching them back together. And he said, well, it's like you're making a documentary, you know, which hadn't really occurred to me. And I don't, I don't really have much experience in that world, but it was, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's a completely different thing mm. than say, you know, compiling recipes and developing them and testing them and writing head notes. Uh, and I really like it. I mean, my, my, um, one of my favorite things to do that doesn't really feel like work uh, for me is, is editing. And so to take a raw interview and go through it and figure out what's the most interesting and important part and kind of refining things down and, you know, following up if necessary, all of that is very uh, pleasurable work for me. Um, and I gotta say it's easier than writing, you know, it's, it's, uh, for me anyway. So, um, yeah, I mean, my ideal situation would be to, to continue to do work like this, uh, after this one is done, if I can get another shot at, uh, helping somebody tell their story, either somebody that's living, if I can help them to tell, you know, to craft a memoir or to do another oral biography, it's really, um, you know, I was starting to feel a little burned out on food writing. I've got to be honest. Uh, I think just having done it a long time, having, you know, written a cookbook with Tony in 2016, I just started to wonder, um, you know, what more do I have to say? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that there's all these great new voices in the field and people getting a chance to tell their stories. And and, uh, I just, I I, I was already starting sort of taking a step back from food writing. Uh, Also, I have to be honest, you know, it, it, 
the the margins just kept getting smaller and smaller. And suddenly a piece that you might have gotten paid a dollar a word for with extra for photos and recipe, suddenly you're making half that. And it's a lot of work, you know? So um, for me, it's been a really, it's been a really nice change to do this kind of work. Uh, now the, the book, uh, the other book that, that I've worked on is a, is a travel book that's coming out in October. Um, and I feel like my publisher is going to kill me for talking about either of these books so much, <laughs> but, um, but that one, um, that one is a little bit more food-based because it, it's, it's drawing a lot from Tony's experience uh, out in the world, which uh, obviously was, was in many ways um, through the lens of food and the, the foods that people eat around the world. So that, um, it, you know, sticks a little bit closer to home, but it still was, you know, in writing a, a travel book, that's a, a different thing than, than writing a cookbook or a, a food-based memoir or an exploration of, a, of one single culture. So, um, yeah, it's been... It's been uh, a different uh, a different time period uh, since since Tony's death, for sure. Um, I definitely want to hear more about that, but first we're going to take a quick break. So okay. um, we will be right back. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively, this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60% of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide microgrants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate at jamesbeard.org relief. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food, a podcast about innovators, entrepreneurs, and career changers. Uh, today, our guest is Laurie Wolliver, writer and uh, longtime assistant and right hand to Anthony Bourdain. Um, right before the break, we were talking about uh, some of the new books that Laurie's working on. Uh, and I was wondering, Laurie, if we could maybe ask you to share some behind the scenes stories. You probably get asked this question a million times and you probably hate it. And I apologize in, in advance, <laughs> but is there like a, I don't know, a story that illustrates what it was like to be on the other side of, of everything that, that Anthony Bourdain was doing? Uh, sure. Uh, so a couple of years into uh, working for him, you know, I, when I started working for him as his assistant, my son was less than a year old, and uh, and then the years went on, and he got older and a little, you know, um, more independent. And at some point, I, I told Tony I was I was taking a trip uh, on my own to Colombia, and he said, "Oh, you like to travel?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, I just I haven't done it because my son's been younger, but now he's a little older, and I can leave him for." A period of time, and he said, "Well, then you've got to come along with us, uh, you know, go, uh, on a shoot." And uh, I just thought, oh, my God, is this really <laughs> happening? So he said, all right, so, you know, uh, here's the list of, you know, where we're going to be going next year. And why don't you pick one place and uh, I'll pay for your flights and your accommodations and just come and see what we do. And, you know, you don't have to work. You don't have to be part of the crew. In fact, you know, you shouldn't. You should stay out of the way, but come and see what we do and hang out. So, which is, you know, a, a dream. And I, I don't think I ever would have asked him for that, uh, but that he was so generous in offering it was, was incredible. So the first, uh, the first trip of that nature that I went on was to um, Hue, Vietnam, in the, in the central part of the country. And uh, I realized later, and I, I, some of what I've realized now through um, interviewing people about Tony, is that he was, um, you know, he really if there were something that he loved and he could share it with another person in real life and, and show them what was so fantastic about it, that was really truly gratifying to him. And it wasn't just about, you know, making good television, but it was, um, you know, let me, let me try and help you have this experience. That's, that really moved me. So I was prepared to kind of stay out of the way and not go on to the set and just sort of do my own thing. Uh, and at some point he said, well, why don't, you know, why don't you just, he's like, if 
I'm going to be riding the scooter, you know, as much as I can. I have my own scooter set aside. So anytime I'm on the scooter, you're going to ride with me. So, um, and that was such a, you know, such a joy for him, such a moment, like a, like a, um, an unusual moment to be, you know, not being filmed and not being driven around and not being sort of controlled, but just to put on a helmet, get on the scooter and just get out in, into the, the streets, you know, and if, if you've seen footage of, of people riding scooters in Vietnam, or if you've been there, you know, it's a really, um, it can be harrowing, you know, it can be terrifying. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a, a rhythm and a, a, a way of, the, of people merging and uh, interacting with each other that doesn't um, always make sense to the Western uh, driver. And, and so uh, for a number of times, I got to ride around on the back of a scooter with Tony. And I just thought, this is, this is absurd that this is <laughs> happening. Uh, you know, but it just really, it, it was to see me enjoying it, I think was, was, uh, was a thrill to him. Uh, and then uh, sort of on the flip side of things, a few years later, we went to um, Sri Lanka and we took a train from Colombo uh, which is sort of in the south central part of the island, up to the north to Jaffna, which is in the um, is is basically at the northern uh, end of the island, and uh, it was a it was supposed to be I think a seven or eight hour train trip. It ended up being about eleven hours, and uh, you know I had I had taken train trips with Tony before. We were when we were in Japan, we went across the country on the bullet train, and it was you know we had the the first class tickets and the air conditioning and the beautiful lunch and that's a comfortable seats. And it was this like unbelievable luxury experience. So I just thought that's how Tony got around everywhere in the world. And this train really um, changed my, <laughs> my view of that. This was, uh, it was incredibly hot, like just, uh, you know, relentlessly hot and humid, no air conditioning in the car. Uh, and the, just these kind of rickety ceiling fans mounted to the, to this, um, the inside of the train and just, and it was, you know, it wasn't like there was some special VIP car where Tony sat and stayed comfortable. I mean, he was as miserable as everyone else riding along. And he and most of the crew had been, um, had had a stomach issue uh, while we were in Sri Lanka. So everyone's nauseated, everyone's, you know, weak and, and feeling horrible. And here we are just bumping along on this, this, you know, truly, uh, miserable, but beautiful uh, train ride. So, you know, to see that, like, it's not just for TV that sometimes he's really, you know, he's really immersed in these very, um, you know, true to life experiences of, of uh, you know, of a, of a difficult, hot, miserable train ride. And then you get to the get to the end and, you know, the train stops and we're overlooking like a waste, looking, <laughs> you know, and it smells terrible. And it's like, this is, you know, it's, it was very real. So it was, um, those were kind of the opposite extremes, I guess you would say. I also wanted to ask about the Queens episode, which uh, is maybe if I had to choose maybe my favorite one and one that you were featured in, in front of the camera, pretty, pretty heavily. Uh, what was what was that like? What was it like taking that that whole approach that had been applied to lots of other countries and lots of other places and and bringing it home, and then also being in front of the camera and, and presenting it? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I will say that I was not. Um, I was not expecting it. It was very. Uh, it was sort of an impromptu thing. I think a few months before that, we were in a car. Uh, we were promoting our book, Appetites, and. Um, Tony said, oh, we're doing a Queens issue or a Queens episode. And I said, oh, that's cool. You know, I live in Jackson Heights. And he said, oh, I thought you lived in Brooklyn, <laughs> which was like, it's the worst, worst thing worked you for you for like seven you years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was like five. I was like, no, 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 I live in Queens. Uh, and he's like, all right, that's interesting. And then about a couple days later, one of his producers called and said, uh, Tony says that you're going to be on the Queens episode, you know, and it wasn't like a question. It was like, this is happening, you know? So it's not my most natural uh, uh, habitat to be in front of the camera, certainly, but it was, you know, I certainly wasn't going to say no. Uh, So it was, it was, it was fun, but nerve wracking. And, you know, when they told me that we were going to be going to the racetrack uh, and I went a couple times as a kid to Saratoga, but I really didn't know. Um, I wanted, I wanted to, 
to not be a complete idiot, you know, when it came to actually uh, talk, being at the races and betting. And so I had a friend who, who um, knows a lot about all kinds of sports. And I had him uh, go with me to the racetrack the day before we were supposed to shoot. And we watched a bunch of races and we placed some bets and he sort of gave me all the vocabulary and really kind of gave me a crash course in, um, in the whole thing. And then as it turned out the next day, uh, extremely unusual, they actually canceled the races because there was high winds and, um, uh, you know, aqueduct racetrack runs, they have sort of the shit end of the stick when it comes to the New York state, uh, racing schedule. They, they, I think they start in late October and they run through April. So they're very used to, uh, not great, you know, New York state, uh, winter conditions, uh, for racing. And it's extremely unusual that they cancel the races, but the, the winds were such that it was too dangerous. So they canceled the races and I thought, Oh, I'm not going to, you know, as much as I was nervous about it, I was ready. I had even, um, it's sort of embarrassing, but I had hired somebody to come and do my makeup mm-hmm. and my hair. And, uh, and then they canceled the shoot. Um, and as it turned out, they were able to get a, get a slot, uh, for a month later, so a month passes and uh, I kind of forget most of what I've learned from my friend about all of the, uh, the racing terms. But I, I sort of refreshed myself. I looked at my notes and I think I was able to, you know, not completely embarrass myself and uh, play some bets. And, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. Um, I don't drink now, but at that time I was still drinking. And so um, the, the producers definitely made sure to keep our beers full and that makes it a lot easier to just relax and, uh, and have a good time and yell at the horses. And, uh, it, it was great. You know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to represent myself as somebody who was like born and bred in Queens. Um, but I've been in Queens for 12 years. I've been in New York city for 26 years. So, uh, you know, I was, I was a little bit nervous about, about being, you know, one of very few people, uh, to be on an episode that was all about Queens. But, um, you know, Jackson Heights is also an extremely, uh, a a mixed community of people who kind of come and go and come from all over the world. So, um, and we didn't actually talk about Jackson Heights anyway. We were, uh, in, uh, Ozone Park, I guess. So, uh, so it was, it was great, you know, and I, I got, um, some good feedback and I got some, some people who thought I was obnoxious and that's fine. I mean, I think I was a little bit, but, um, I had a good time. I was really glad that I got to do it. Awesome. So I actually, um, I mean, I know you mentioned that you, you have some experience in restaurants. Um, you know, I read earlier today, I read this, a really poignant piece, Gabrielle Hamilton, um, published in the New York Times about um, kind of the fate of her restaurant prune and what, you know, what is it going to look like in the future? So, I mean, you as just someone who kind of, you know, has, has, has a pulse on the industry, um, given the state of where we are now, um, do you like, what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on the food industry at large, be it restaurants, I mean, obviously, a lot of food writing is based off of restaurants' existence. Um, like, mm-hmm. do you see pivots being made? Um, I guess just like, what's what's your take on on what's happening right now and the uncertainty of um, that many people in our industry are facing? Yeah, I mean, uncertainty. Uncertainty, I think, is really the best word to describe it. You know, it's just. Um, I think that necessarily there's going to have to be a, a percentage of the people that have worked uh, historically in restaurants that are they're going to have to find employment elsewhere. I mean, there just aren't going to be as many outlets, at least not for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, those those places that are able that have been able to do uh, an immediate pivot into takeout and um, and delivery. That's something, but I think it's, uh, you know, from what I understand there, it's, it's the rare restaurant and not that there aren't some that, that are, that aren't doing it, but I think it's the rare restaurant that's actually, you know, making their expenses with just, um, with just takeout and delivery, Uh, you know, even with the relaxing of the restrictions on selling alcohol, uh, which is God, you know, whoever would have thought you could, you could sell takeaway alcohol in New York state. I mean, (laughs) Um, it'd be interesting if they, I would be great if they could, you know, keep that as a permanent change once things go back to normal, although I, I seriously doubt it. But uh, yeah, I think it's, um, you know, my my boyfriend is a chef and uh, he just opened a restaurant uh, about six weeks before all of this happened. And uh, 
you know, and, and it, it doesn't matter how, how much blood, sweat and tears you put into something, you know, once it's shut down, it's really, really hard to get it back up and running. You know, he, he's with a, a fairly uh, sizable uh, New York City restaurant company and there's just nobody has any answers. You know, nobody, none of the employees, none of the partners, none of the investors. I mean, there's just, it's just a huge question mark. So, you know, as far as um, food writers, I, I think, uh, you know, I've seen, I've been really sort of heartened to see the work that like Eater National has done uh, in terms of, you know, pivoting to, to food, not only to home cooking, but also to really digging deep into policy stuff and, uh, and, you know, calling people to account and doing, you know, sort of the, the kind of work that journalism really should be doing right now. Um, and it's, I think if you had told anybody 10 years ago that this is what the food writing landscape was going to look like, um, you know, it just, it just, it's a heartening shift. Um, you know, whether or not publications can continue to be viable is another question. I mean, you know, there's people aren't advertising, people aren't subscribing, uh, you know, it's just, um, it's such a confusing time for everybody. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that. Uh, so in the long run, I mean, I think there probably will be, there, there will be fewer food writers. I mean, there's, you know, what's, what does criticism look like right now? I mean, I think that we have to start sort of criticizing our government, criticizing, you know, the way that business loans have been dispersed or not dispersed. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, if it, if it, if, Absolutely. it, if it can be, a moment for uh, for journalists to really uh, to really behave like journalists and and less like um, you know I guess more more hard journalism and less service journalism. I think that probably will serve will serve everyone. Um, and we, it's it's really just such a wait and see. Isn't I it? I yeah, and I think what you're saying it makes perfect sense. And I think you know especially with social media like with Twitter, um, there's a tendency for people, you know, you build platform, a platform, and people expect something from you. So if you build your platform Mm -hmm. as a food writer on on restaurant criticism, and then you start potentially criticizing the government's distribution of funds to certain restaurants, people kind of have a problem with it, which is fascinating. It's Mm -hmm. this whole like stay in your lane mentality. So in a way, being able to pivot um, it's almost like we all have to pivot, whether or not we're the writers as consumers, we have to pivot with what we expect, um, with our expectations from writers, from food writers, mm-hmm. um, from everyone, because I think you're absolutely right. Like restaurant criticism, at least today in April, 2020, the shift absolutely needs to be on criticism of who gets to survive essentially. Um, because we know if, if someone like Gabrielle Hamilton, who has this incredible career and a James Beard award winning restaurant and books, you know, if she's saying she could only make payroll for one week. So of course she had to lay off her entire staff, including her wife, um, without help. It's like the institutionally, these, these restaurants and businesses, they just cannot possibly sustain themselves without help, at least the independent ones. Mm-hmm. So um, thank you for pointing out <laughs> where our criticism should be lying these days. Yeah. yeah. I guess, Laurie, if, if you could uh, sort of, I mean, we may actually have this opportunity to start from scratch in a sense to say like, what does food media look like post coronavirus is what would you What's your ideal vision? What would you, how would you build it? How would I build? Yeah, we're putting, we're putting Lori Wolver in charge of of all post coronavirus (laughs) food media. Uh, Uh, Pat, what are your, what are your decrees? (laughs) Well, first of all, I would like, I would love for, uh, for the pay rate to get back to what it was (laughs) in the, uh, we'll say like the pre 9 11 era, you know, where you could, uh, make a living as a food writer, you know, where you could probably make a really comfortable living as a food writer, getting, you know, two, three dollars a word and, and having uh, a contract with a publication um, that may be asking too much. I know that the entire publishing uh, model has changed quite a bit in the past 20 or so years. But um, 
that I'd start with that, you know, make it a, make it a viable uh, career for, uh, and that may end up meaning that there are fewer people doing it. But uh, you know, if you look at what some of the, some of the food writing that's out there, it's basically bot generated garbage, you know, (laughs) so get rid of the bot generated garbage, maybe, uh, you know, have some sort of, um, of a, of a, I don't know, governing body. That's too, it's like, fascistic our utopian uh, god um, dystopian food media perfect yes world. Yeah. right yeah uh you know the thing one of the things that i think is has been really encouraging and really amazing in the past 10 years that i'd like to see continue is the uh is the much broader range of voices and much broader range of topics uh that that are considered um you know worthy of being covered uh, if I think about the way that um, food writing was happening when I first started, it was uh, it was golf courses and you know foie gras and uh, and Bordeaux. You know, it was it was really very focused on the high end, very focused on largely white and largely white male uh, celebrity chefs and on resort areas and uh, very. Um, wealthy areas of various uh, U.S. cities. It was incredibly limited. Uh, and I remember getting, um, getting pushed back when I would pitch things that were a little outside of that, that sort of norm. Uh, and now to see people writing about uh, the food of their immigrant families or the food that they grew up with that doesn't fit into um, that sort of fine dining paradigm, uh, people writing about um, the, the politics of food and 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 who should and can be able to tell what stories and uh, and, and things like food insecurity and you know all of these things uh, you know again it's been a very short amount of time that this has been part of the spectrum of food writing so I definitely want to see that trend continue and, and expand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, should thanks. um should we finish with some rapid fire questions, Ethan? Yeah, let's do it. All right, uh, All right. I'll start. Yeah. What's your, like, what's the one pantry thing you're cooking these days? Like a pan, something people could easily cook from their pantry. Uh, I've been doing uh, a lot of oats, just like oatmeal in the microwave, but also like I'll cook, I'll just mix up some oats with some peanut butter and some sugar and just eat it. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so comforting. I love it. And you've got fiber. That's awesome. Like healthy mm-hmm. comfort food. It's cookie dough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's cookie dough without the raw eggs and without the raw flour. Um, what uh, What's your son's favorite uh, quarantine cooking dish? Mm, uh, honestly, if I go out and get him a slice of pizza from the corner deli that's or the corner pizza place that's still open, he's he told somebody recently that that was his favorite quarantine food. I was like, are you kidding me? I am making so much good stuff here. But, uh, but you know, he's, he's also a big uh, fan of a tuna melt. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think even those of us who love to cook, everyone is getting like weary from cooking all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I'm like, my favorite yeah. takeout places are closed. But um, so I'm, I'm kind of with your son. I'm like something that I don't have to cook or mm-hmm. that mom doesn't have to cook. And mm-hmm. you know, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I normally like to ask about like vegetables in season, but um, are you making it to the farmer's market these days? I know Ethan's working there like 60 hours a week, um, making sure that we wow. can all still get fresh fruits and vegetables. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time. Before. Honestly, I've never eaten better in my life. I get, I bring home such good stuff. Anyway, Lori, <laughs> your question. Yeah. yeah. So- <laughs> well, you know, our... our- our neighborhood, uh, Jackson Heights, uh, the farmers market has been up and running throughout. It's it's amazing what they've been able to do to uh, you know to get the vendors spaced out and mark spaces on the ground for where you can stand. I mean, it's really I give them so much credit for figuring out the logistics. Uh, and so yeah, every every uh, weekend I go over there on Sunday mornings and usually get some some greens. And uh, of course, you know we're in that season where it's it feels like all the spring stuff should be there. Yet it's still it's still kind of winter food. But um, you know I'm very happy with sweet potatoes and uh, and some kale and some spinach. And uh, I'm, yeah, I I'm a big vegetable cook, so I'm I'm very happy to still have that as an option in our neighborhood. Yeah, that's great. Valerie, are you getting good produce in Louisiana? Um, it's 
it's not really like that right now. Like normally when I come here, I'm like out in the fields picking berries or go to grandma's house and pick some grapefruit from the tree. But um, I've just been, you know, hunkered down in, in one room with a nice window and desk. So um, I'm pretty comfortable, but I can't say I'm um, getting a lot of that, that good Louisiana produce I'm used to. But that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It'll, it'll be back. Yeah. Um, anything else, you guys, before we wrap things up? Well, Lori, where, where can people find you, find your work, follow you on social channels, download your podcast, all the other things you're doing? Oh, my God, so much. So I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at Lori Willever. It's L-A-U-R-I-E-W-O-O-L-E-V-E-R. Uh, our podcast, Carb Face for Radio, is on Instagram and Twitter at Carb Face Pod. And uh, I have a website that's lauriewilliver.com that has uh, a lot of my writing on it and past interviews and just kind of, I think there's, maybe I have the video clip from the Queen's episode of Parts Unknown. If not, I'll try and get that up there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a general uh, place if you want to read what I've written. And, uh, and then the travel book comes out in October of 2020. And it's being published by HarperCollins Echo. Awesome. All right. And thanks to Jess Krangich, our sound engineer. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. As always, you can find us uh, on social at YFoodPodcast. Uh, email us, yfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can follow me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you guys can follow me on Instagram at Foodie in New York. And most of all, Lori, thank you for joining us. This has been such a pleasure. Of course. Thank you guys so much. All right. Take care, everybody. Tune in next week. Bye. Bye. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.